I'd like to um, read, uh, have you turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, and we'll begin reading at verse 21. I want to give you a little bit of background on this first. The, there's the debate about when the gospel was written by Matthew, uh, actually, might have been as early as the late middle to late 50s. Uh, Jesus, of course, um, died, ascended to heaven, res res was raised from to, to life and ascended to heaven in the early 30s. And so probably, and Paul wrote his books, late 40s, a couple of them maybe, then early 50s, a lot of them to mid, 50, mid 50s to late 50s. It's very, very likely, well, the debate goes, did Matthew write this in the late 50s or, and I think the best answer is the early 70s. So there's about a 12, 15 year window in there when it might have happened. But the point being is that it's well after Jesus ascended into heaven. And the church was going through new church fits and starts. Uh, if you've read the Apostle Paul's letters to the book of Corinth, to Corinthians and to Galatians, you know that there, they had, it was not easy going. They had Rome, they had uh, the Jewish oppressors, they had party spirit, partisan spirit. Paul writes in Corinthians about, well, some follow Paul, some follow Apollos. We choose. Already we had the Paul party and the Apollos party choosing up sides and disapproving of each other. We had the circumcision, the uncircumcision question. There, there, were, there were all sorts of squabbles in the church already. And the best writing that I've, and the, the leading that I've basically found that helped me understand this parable of the unmerciful servant br brings it to light in that context. And the, certainly Matthew was, a, was, a, was an apostle, Matthew wrote by the power of the Holy Spirit what he uh, remembered, what was true. This is how he wrote it down. We, it's entirely reliable for us. Um, but but there, was, there was a, if you will, political, a, a church politics agenda going on here. And Peter, uh, Matthew wasn't choosing sides, but what he was saying is that we need to be a new creation church. What we're seeing is too often old creation ways. We're seeing partisan spirit. We're seeing squabbling. We're seeing, I follow this, I follow this, I disapprove of you, this, this. We're, that's what we're seeing, Matthew is saying, at least according to this writer, whom I believe is, has, has it very right. Uh, and so... These stories from Matthew wrote these stories to this infant church going through its infancy and going through its toddlerhood, trying to make its way, trying to find out who it is that God wanted them to be. And that's why in chapter 18, we first have this, the, the apostles come and say, who's the greatest? Who's number one? Very two-year-old-ish sort of thing to do, isn't it? 
That's, that's what a toddler does. They, that's the sort of question they asked. And Jesus says, tell you what, you got to be like this one. And he brings this little child on his knee and says, you, if, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be like this. And he tells them that and I think shames them with that. And then he tells them in uh, the parable of the lost sheep, he says, now, now some of these people who have been part of our fellowship are weak. Some of you are strong. Some of you are bold in the faith. Some of you have it all right. But some of you are weak. Some of you have strayed and erred. Now, we don't throw them out just because they're weak. We go and put all of our attention into get, regathering them bringing them back into the fold. That's, that's the parable of the lost sheep. And then the next thing, talking with his disciples then, who started off with saying, who's number one? Jesus says, now when we do have a weaker brother or sister, a weaker member of the fellowship who strays, we do need to, this is a, a situation we need to correct. So this is how we do it. We go through steps and reformed church order and reformed the the way we practice church discipline. How we bring an errant brother or sister back into the fold comes out of these verses from Matthew 18. So after that, Peter, and we're going to be in the parable, Peter says, ha, got this figured out. He comes up to Jesus and he says, what if I forgive my brother seven times? Now, Peter, I think, thought that was a very big deal because he was a typical person. Most people have a hard time managing one time to forgive somebody else. The rabbis at the time were saying three times. You've got to forgive him three times. Peter says, well, based on what you've been saying to us, Jesus... Seven. What about seven? And that, that's the context, it seems to me, and that the writer that I was uh, 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 <coughs> excuse me, consulting, uh, Frederick Dale Bruner, um, puts onto this story. So let's, with that introduction, sorry it's long, but there it is. I think it's important to our understanding this parable because of that context of a, being a toddler church and really getting a lot wrong, but full of promise, too. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. If you do the math, it's 490. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold. This is sold into slavery. To repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him, Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant 
went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers from your heart. And this is the word of the Lord. You know, I don't know if you get nervous like I do when you pray the Lord's Prayer and say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That gets a big ulp from me because, I'll be frank with you, I need a lot more forgiveness than I'm willing to grant. I'm one of those people for whom, and I suspect I'm not alone, if you're honest with yourself, for whom forgiving once, uh, a few more times maybe, is hard, especially if there's been some, some slight, some, some, something that, that I really take exception to. It is a hard thing to do to forgive. And, but when it comes to the Lord forgiving me, I hope he is much more gracious to me than I am to others. And I don't know if you can recognize yourself in that, but it's a powerfully unsettling thought. That there is some correlation. That Jesus says there ought to be a correlation between the the forgiveness we receive and the forgiveness we grant to others. We get, we get unsettled because we live in a cause-and-effect world. You know, even in physics class in high school, we learn that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. There, there is a proportionality. Things, things fit together. It's an orderly world, right? You, uh, if I drop these papers a hundred times, about the very same thing will happen a hundred times. It's a predictable sort of world we have. Things fit together for there's, there's reaction, there's cause effect. There's cause effect. That's how it works. And that's all fine and good. Makes for an orderly, predictable kind of life until we start thinking about our sin and our need for mercy. Because then a cause and effect world gets us very unsettled because we recognize, if, if 
led by the Holy Spirit, we're honest with ourselves and with each other, that it is a cause and effect world, and I am going to be held accountable. And the scriptures say it. I, each will be held accountable for the things they have done. There's a correlation. It fits together, and it makes for a perfectly uh, sensible world. It, it, that principle works in science. In physics, physics class, you learn it. If you are a lawyer, you know, if you're uh, in law enforcement, you know that laws, when they're broken, have consequences. If you're in medicine, you know that behaviors, uh, abuse of sodium, of fat, of, of, of sh sugar, of alcohol, of, of the abuse of food has consequences. Uh, Nicotine, tobacco, the, the, we, we, it's the kind of world God made it for us to live in. Things fit together. When it comes, however, to the consequences that ought to then, Jesus says, naturally flow from what we do, we get into consideration. If God treats us, as we treat others, then we are in considerable trouble. So Peter comes to Jesus, and he, he hears all this, and the, the early church knew about the forgiveness of sin. That, they, that was the center story in their church life. They didn't have much in the way of written texts to tell them about it yet, but, but the stories of what Jesus had done, how he had given himself on the cross, how that it had satisfied the wrath of God for our sins, they realized that it was a cause and effect world. They realized that the great mass of our sin had an equal and appropriate answer, not just some little thing that didn't, that was just a, a little bit against this mountain and stuff. No, the death of the Son of God on the cross to pay for the great mountain of sin, it, it took that much. It took the death of the Son of God to pay for the sins of the world. It, it, it was not, uh, it, it was exactly proportionate. God has made a cause and effect world we, we the doctrine we call propitiation it's a and and atonement the the blood of jesus cancels sin it it it's in balance it it works together and, so, and they knew that just as well as we do do even though they didn't have the printed texts the difference i think is that for them it wasn't sort of this yes yes we've heard it all before we go through good friday we go through Holy Week, we, we go through the Heidelberg Catechism, our, how, greatness our, how great our sins and miseries are. We, we, you know, we sing nothing but the blood of Jesus. We, it's, it's old news to us. And the danger of it being old news, gloriously true, but the danger of it being old news is that we can have a ho-hum about it all reflex. We can look at what he did on the cross for us and say, 
well, yeah, that's all very nice, and now I'm free. I, I'm, I've been delivered from my sins, and let's get on to our next project. We, we can do that. That did not happen with them. It was brand new news. And the first, the first church, when they heard Peter come up and say, well, you know, I, we know we've been forgiven. Jesus paid it all. This was, an, especially if they were, these were the book of Matthew was primarily written to the Jewish people, and they were well-grounded. They knew all about. They didn't downplay it like we often do. They knew all about the wrath of God against sin. And the fact that 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 they had been grounded in all their lives was answered in this self-sacrifice of one who came into the world who loved them so, that was not a, a small thing. It fit their burden. So Peter comes and says, okay, I got an appropriate response to all that deliverance that I've experienced. Seven times. I'll forgive. What if I forgive seven times? Pretty good, huh, guys? It seems to me, at least in my mind, mind's eye, that that is what has happened. And Jesus flabbergasts them all and basically says the highest number in the world. I don't know, when I was a little kid, I'd argue with my brother, bet you a million dollars. Well, I'll bet you a billion dollars. I'll bet you a trillion dollars. I'll bet you the highest number in the world. And they, well, I'll bet you two times the highest number of the world. You can't do that. The highest number of the world is the highest number in the world. Uh, that's what we did. <laughs> but Jesus is saying seven times seven, two perfect numbers. It's not 490. It's an infinite number. And in order to get this point across about forgiveness and how our response to forgiveness has to not just be, just be seven times, but an infinite number of times. And he says, well, there was this uh, debtor. He owed 10,000 talents. Now, that's equivalent to the highest number in the world. 10,000 talents was basically 10,000 bags of gold. And one of the writers I read said that it was more than the emperor of Rome had. So it was an insurmountable number. Nobody knows how this servant accumulated such debt and that's not an issue you know we, we we with our blame culture say yeah well what how did he do what did he do how much did he go gambling or something to, to rack up that, those those kind of numbers that's not the issue he what the issue is the size the unthinkable unpayable size of the debt and the master says okay Everything, you, your wife, your children, everything gets sold into slavery. And he falls on his knees, begs for mercy, and the master grants mercy. Now, Jesus' parable doesn't say because the master sent his son to die on the cross and pay for it. That, we don't get into that in that, this parable, but the audience fully knew what the answer to that 10,000 uh, talents of debt was. It was the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. They knew that full well. And the servant, 
He, all, he, all he did was, was beg and ask. And you would think he would, skipping and dancing, run home and embrace and celebrate and be glad for the unspeakable mercy of the master. But he doesn't do that. He goes and finds someone who owes him the equivalent of two days' work. A hundred denarii. Now that's two days' work. Not insignificant either. It's, it's a something, right? But it's, that, was, it, that was in the money of the day. That was the equivalent of two days' work. And that servant, that debtor, does the very same thing to this, this, the one who had been forgiven 10,000 talents, he falls on his knees, begs, please, please, give me a little more time. I'll pay it all. I'll pay it all. And the servant says, not a chance, not a chance. You know, off to prison you go. So it's an outrageous situation. And the other, other servants see it, and they go and they tell the master, and they say, this is how that unmerciful servant showed gratitude. And you or I might say, well, but okay, but why is there a connection? He owed him two days' work. That's one thing. He owed him two days' work. What were we supposed to do, just forget it? He owed him 10,000 talents. Much, much larger number, but and was forgiven, and that's awfully nice. What's the connection? The point for the New Testament church, that 30, 40-year-old church, that was squabbling about everything, not unlike the rest of the 2,000 years of church history. If you read church history, all... The schisms rent asunder, the her by heresies distressed, all of the pain and sorrow, the choosing up parties and disapproving and even shedding the blood of each other over, over issues that are religious in nature, really based on pride more than anything else. What's the connection? Jesus' parable says there's... A hard, hard connection. And basically sums it up and says, in the same way as you, you 10,000 talents debtor, you have been forgiven much, so must you in grateful response, not out of duty, not out of obligation, not as, well, okay, I was given a lot, I guess I'll... Give you your two days, forget about the two days. That's, no, it's out of gratitude. It's out of a grateful heart. There is the connection. And Matthew is saying that for the New Testament church, whether it was 40 years old or 30 years old or 2,000 years old, such as we are sitting here today or very nearly so, the issue is the same. The cross of Christ and the blood that he shed as an atonement for our sin has not diminished. It's maybe become old news for some of us. But the effect, the freedom, the delight, the gratitude it needs to inspire 
has to be the same. A good friend of mine put on Facebook this morning, he says, 13 years today, he's an alcoholic, and today he gets his 13-year badge or whatever it is for, the, for, for being completely sober, uh, drug-free for 13 years today. And he put this uh, remarkable um, prayer of thanksgiving on Facebook this morning. And I was uh, greatly, greatly blessed to hear it. Um, gratitude is why we show mercy. It's why we forgive. We are sinned against people. There's all sorts of reasons we can have to be offended by somebody else. There's that time, and then there's that other time, and then there's, well, let me count the ways. Is what, you know, that we, we can do that. We can do that. We can go on and on and on with how imperfect other people are. And we do that. And find in there some sort of cause and effect justification to say, well, I'll just uh, show them and I won't see if we speak again. We do that. And this, especially when it's a brother. This, this is, by the way, a brother. Someone within the fellowship. So writer Matthew wasn't talking about people out there in the world. He was talking about people within the fellowship that we need to forgive. So it's a hard thing because we are sinned against. Who is it that you can't forgive? There's a good question to ask. And here in the answer, 70 times 7. Who is it that's hurt you so bad? Seventy times seven. When Simon said seven, Jesus said, throw your calculator, throw your, your counter away, Simon. It's not about math. It's about gratitude. It's about gratitude. 